Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin. And today we are discussing Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984. Directed by Charles E. Selye Jr., written by Paul Shiami, based on a story by Michael Hickey, starring Robert Brian Wilson, Lillian Shelvin, Gilmer McCormick, Danny Wagner, and Linnea Quigley. Uh, if you're new to the show, we're going to discuss some spoiler-free info on this movie for the first 15 to 20 minutes. And then after that, we'll take a little fake break, play some transition music, and at that time, you probably want to duck out and go watch this movie if you haven't seen it, because we will spoil it, and you can go watch it on Tubi. Ashvin, was this movie in your awareness at all? Yeah, I think uh, probably one of the other years when we've talked about like Christmas horror films, I feel like this is a name we always uh, have dropped and uh, talked about like getting around to seeing at some point. It seems to be like one of the classic uh, Christmas horror films, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And in the amount of Christmas horror films, though expanding, is kind of a finite list. So mm-hmm. this one definitely uh, is, a, is a contender. And there's also like five or six of these. So part of oh, that yeah, finite list is just <laughs> the franchise here. Yeah, I know. It's, it's surprising because, yeah, I feel, I feel like these holidays uh, like Halloween and Christmas like don't go together at all. So it's cool that there are a few there. What, what do you think are like some of the biggest Christmas horror films outside of this one? Well, I think the head honcho is Black Christmas from 1974. Yeah. Gremlins is another big one, obviously popular. Yeah, I forgot that's a holiday one. And I think Krampus from 2015 has really come into its own and and settled in nicely. I think a lot of people really enjoy that one and watch it regularly. Yeah, I think that's one of the recent ones that are really good. Uh, Compared to that other one that we weren't a big fan of, was it like, what was that one on Netflix, like a Christmas horror story or something? Yep. Uh, uh, actually, a lot of people, there is a movie, horror movie challenge, a Christmas horror movie challenge going on right now on our Discord server. Uh, Big Turkey made a list of all these Christmas movies, and he's giving a prize to the person who watches the most, and people are on it, man. They're watching are a serious? lot of these. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's They're awesome. tearing through them. And th- there's been a lot of praise for a Christmas horror story so far. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember you hated it. I, I thought it might have been okay, actually. I'd, I'd be interested in going back and seeing it. Did yeah, it may have been too harsh. I, I I should go back in knowing what it is and see if my opinion changes. Yeah, it was it was early days uh, for us. And uh, that, that one was like an anthology or something as well, right? It was, yeah. That was a show we did. Uh, I think we did a test episode on that that never aired. Oh, okay. Right. I'll have to go try to find that. But, you know, I, I'm surprised because, uh, yeah, I agree. Like, those are the big ones. Um, this one, though, it was interesting to see that this wasn't, like, the first movie where Santa Claus was, like, this murderous uh, villain. It was kind of like, it seemed like it ripped off of, like, another movie from, like, a few years before this. Yeah, I know very little about that movie, but a movie called Christmas Evil from 1980 also featured a murderous Santa Claus. But mm-hmm. it did not stir up the controversy that this one did. This movie was pulled uh two weeks after its opening. Right, right. That's crazy, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you... It kind of makes sense when you think about the way the movie was marketed. It was basically a stupid and stupid. I mean, I guess it's kind of clever because controversy can be good for a movie, but I yeah. think they went a little too far. They played commercials that aired during family-friendly shows like Little House on the Prairie, they aired during the weekends, during the day, during football games. 
Yeah. Um, and it got the PTA, the Parent Teachers Association, very riled up. It did. There were protests outside theaters. It was would be, it was believed that uh, the depiction of Santa Claus as a murderer would traumatize children and make them terrified of Santa, which rightfully so. I mean, <laughs> they probably shouldn't have played these trailers at a time where children were watching TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Siskel and Ebert lambasted it and went so far as to list the names of the producers on air just to shame them. <laughs> shame on you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know, that's that's pretty harsh critique, man. Yeah, you know, so pretty rough. I, I read in different places it got pulled after one week or after two. Regardless, mm-hmm. it was pulled very quickly. And uh, so its box office, honestly, for that short a time was still pretty good. It was $2.5 million. I know. I'm surprised that it turned a profit. It outgrossed A Nightmare on Elm Street, which opened on the same day. Isn't that amazing? So theoretically, it could have gone on to be more financially successful than A Nightmare on Elm Street. I know, and it, part of that makes me wonder if uh, it was all that controversy that that made it uh, such like a sensational, like have such a strong opening weekend and uh, so much revenue for two weeks. Is yeah, two, that's crazy that that would have surpassed uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right, you're right. Maybe the marketing is to credit there. Yeah. Did you watch the trailer by any chance? I kept meaning to, and then I never did. Did you? I checked it out because, yeah, I was wondering, like, what would it be to be, like, a kid in 1984? You're watching Little House on the Prairie, and then this pops up, and it's it's messed up. It's basically, like, a scene of every kill that happens in the movie, which is also strange. Like, you're basically showing uh, – I, I don't know why you'd give away, like, all the kills. Like, you see Linnea Quigley's back to, like, a pair of antlers and stuff, and um, you see, like, knives happening and stuff. So it's just – it gives away every kill, but it's also really traumatic, I imagine, for a kid to see, like, a Santa Claus on TV doing that. If we ever make t-shirts for the show, I would like the first one we make to say, Knives Happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> <A lot laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you watched that. It was on my to-do list forever, and I just totally ended up blanking on it. I kept kicking that can down the road. Yeah, yeah, you should see it. It's it's a, it's 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 not very uh, like innovative or anything, but I could totally see how kids would be, and, and parents would be pretty, uh, yeah, you know, pretty upset by seeing it. Sure. Um, actually, there was a plan to re-release this movie in theaters in 1985 with advertising that would focus on the controversy of the initial release instead of any Santa imagery, but that release never came to fruition. It didn't end yeah. up happening. Yeah, that was really confusing. It's like what they thought about it, and then they didn't do it. Yeah, I can't remember. They just couldn't get their act together. I didn't find any information as to what exactly caused it to never happen. Yeah, okay. Um, But the film was released to VHS in 1986 without any hitches or controversies as far as I could see. Right, right. Do you think uh, today, if this film was coming out... And he had like similar like uh, promotional materials, which I mean, you did have like a remake of this back in um, twenty twelve. I want to say, correct. Uh, I mean, like it, we wouldn't see anywhere near that type of uh, controversy, right? I don't think so. No, but I also have a hard time believing they would have shown these previews on, like, during Disney Little Channel. House on the Prairie nowadays, <laughs> or its equivalent in twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, yeah, that part is pretty disturbing. Yeah. But then, wh- why do you think uh, the other one, uh, was it called A Christmas Evil or An Evil Christmas? I think Christmas Evil just flew under the radar a little bit more. I honestly don't know much about that movie, so I don't want to tell tales out of school, but 
Yeah. They obviously didn't advertise during Little House on the Prairie, so. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that's a terrible strategy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just that, you know, it made me wonder what, what, what was, like, the big deal with this one. Is it just because it's Santa Claus? But I think you're right. I think it's hitting the, the timing of, like, where you're putting those commercials. Yeah. Um, and despite all the controversy, or maybe partly because of all the controversy, this film spawned a six-film franchise. Uh, there was Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2 from 1987. Ashwin and I are going to record a Patreon on that right after this. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out in 1989. Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation. Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toymaker. And Silent Night 2012, which was a remake. And 4 and, and then, 5, it sounds like, are standalone, unrelated stories to the saga of 1 through 3. Oh, okay, okay. And then there's uh, one in the works right now, I think, right? Supposedly, in March of 2021, that was reported that a reboot was in development, but there has not been much news of it since, so we will mm. see. Yeah. Um, and Charles, I don't know if he pronounces it Cellier or Cellier, but S-E-L-L-I-E-R, he was a very prolific writer and especially producer. He wrote the novel The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams in 1972, and then created the success, successful TV series based on that book in the late 70s. Um, and he was renowned in the industry for creating really profitable independent films, many of them with Christian themes, surprisingly. S- titles <laughs> like In Search of Noah's Ark from 1976 and In Search of Historic Jesus from 1979. Wow. Yeah. It, he okay. was born a Catholic, converted to Mormonism, and then became an angel evangelical christian good lord wow (laughs) how does that tie to this movie (laughs) right it's it's interesting how does silent night deadly night with two fairly graphic attempted rape scenes and plenty of egregious nudity and violence fit into this man's life story and body of work it's it's kind of puzzling (laughs) you think just like a lot of suppressed emotions that he wasn't able to bring out through other forms you just brought it all out in this movie. I don't know, and he did not have any writing credits on this film, so it's hard to know how much of it is fair to attribute to him, but it's interesting yeah. to at least think what he may have thought about it. Um, right. And he was no longer a Catholic, or at least ended up leaving Catholicism. I'm not sure when, so I wonder what he thought about the um, Catholic orphanage and, and how that was handled in the film. Oh, yeah, right, right. Wow, that's that's super interesting. Um, yeah. Do you think that's also why he doesn't come back for the sequel? Like he just did this one, and that was like enough for him. Yeah, I'm not sure. He he did deny. He said he wouldn't want to come back for the sequel. They offered it to him, but he said no. I don't know what that had to do with. And maybe you know, it was probably a lot with the controversy of the first one. So maybe he was just done. Oh, sure. Um, he yeah. was also the executive producer of an. Emmy-nominated made-for-TV movie from 1980, which was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, starring Jeff Goldblum as Ichabod Crane. Oh, cool. I don't think I've ever seen that one, have you? Wild. No, I've never seen that one. Yeah, I'll check that out. He's also uh, got uh, producer credits for n- a Knight Rider, 2000 in 1991. Oh, nice. I feel like I've, I've probably caught an episode of that here and there. Yeah, for sure. Same. Yeah. I was into that for a hot minute. Yeah, yeah. Those, those were, that was a good show. Um, the, the music was also done by a guy named Perry Botkin Jr., who won a Grammy Award for the theme to The Young and the Restless in 1977. Oh, damn. He scored about a dozen films, did the music for several famous sitcoms like Mork and Mindy, 
Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and the Beverly Hillbillies. Wow. Among many others. Um, he yeah. also worked as a producer with a band named the Incredible Bongo Band, uh, who were super influential on hip-hop, because many of their songs would go on to be used as samples by early hip-hop artists. And Perry Bakken Jr. specifically was a producer on the song called Apache by the Incredible Bongo Band, which many people would probably recognize if they heard it. It was later adapted by the Sugar Hill Gang to that, like, Apache, jump on it. Jump oh, on no it. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Wow, what an interesting career. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, the movie's got 44% on Rotten Tomatoes, 39 with users, uh, but it's a bit of a cult classic. Seems like it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I think, too, we'll discuss this in our Patreon episode, but I think Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 might even retroactively made one more of a classic, at least in these modern uh, internet times. Uh, made one more of a classic? I think people may have put some attention on to the first installment in this oh. franchise because <laughs> yeah. of a famous gif from the second film in which a character says garbage day. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's certainly part of why it's it's on my radar oh okay from that meme yeah <laughs> all right any other background on this before we head into the ohio connection you know i was just surprised how little there is about uh the main actor here robert brian wilson couldn't mm-hmm. find too much on him um so yeah you, you have any idea like it doesn't seem like he went on to do like any other big roles or anything he had a few more small roles i think he did a little bit of um, either daytime or primetime TV, mm-hmm. and then he stepped away from the business and became an organized... I don't know. He works in like the trade show industry now, or at okay. least that's what he ended up doing. He may be retired by now, but he mm-hmm. he had a few more roles, nothing huge, and then he, he stepped away from the industry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, then, yeah, I mean, the, the only person like, I really recognized here was uh, Lene Quigley. Um Everyone else, uh, yeah, it just kind of seems like the, this movie probably didn't fare well for a lot of the cast or directors or producers associated with it. Yeah, I mean, there were a few recognizable faces and people that had roles in other stuff, but uh, yeah, it's not really uh, recognizable names, although, as we just learned, Charles Sollier and Perry Botkin went on to, to do some interesting work. So That's true, yep, yep. And acclaimed work. But yeah, and Linnea Quigley, of course, is just kind of a... 1980s scream queen who's appeared topless in a good chunk of <laughs> 80s horror movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, anything else or should I hit the Ohio Connection? No, that's all I got. Okay. As always, our friend Alex connects every movie to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you're in the area, pop in for a drink. And some food and tell Alex you're a fan of the show. And Alex says Silent Night, Deadly Night is a psychological slasher film about a young man named Billy who suffers from post-traumatic stress over witnessing his parents' murder on Christmas Eve by a man disguised as Santa Claus. The film developed a cult following and spawned a series consisting of four sequels as well as a loose remake in 2012. The fifth installment, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toymaker, was released in 1991 and starred former child star Mickey Rooney as a toy store owner. 
Rooney-born Joseph Ewell Jr. first performed in vaudeville as a child actor before breaking through the mainstream as the title character in the popular Mickey Maguire series of 78 short films. The popularity of this series and the inability for him to separate from the character forced legal issues for him and his family as they sued the film studio to defend their ability to monetize, monetize his portrayal of the character. Rooney, then Joseph Ewell Jr., changed his name legally to Mickey, and his parents, both in an effort to enhance a lawsuit, changed their last names to McGuire. The lawsuit was lost, but the groundwork for a permanent name change had been laid. Initially, his surname was changed to Looney, Mickey Looney, but was changed due to a conflict with the popular Looney Tunes franchise, and he ultimately settled on the surname Rooney. The details of this lawsuit and name change requests were detailed in a newspaper piece from the August 29, 1930 edition of the Evening Review, a publication based in East Liverpool, Ohio. Oh my god. <laughs> is is Alex uh, is he upset with us or something? Is he okay? <laughs> yeah. Did, did we do something? <laughs> He's had to be working really hard to get to some of these lately. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that was that was a long one. That was a long one. And we yeah. all learned something about Mickey Rooney. I never knew that. I mean, I'm not sure if I know who Mickey Rooney is. I think you'd know his face. I'm not super familiar with his career, and I couldn't tell you what he's in, but I, yeah. I know his face when I see it, and I know okay. the name. Okay, okay. I'll look him you up. might know him as Mickey Looney. Oh, Nicky Looney. <laughs> Why didn't you say so? <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. Uh, let's get into the plot and spoil stuff and review this movie. But before we do, do you mind holding on one second? I've been keeping an eye on my catatonic grandpa while we record, and it sounds like he's trying to tell me something. Just hold on one second. Oh, sure. All right. Cool. Hey man, I'm back. Hey, did he uh, did did he have something to tell you? Yeah, he just had some uh, really horrible things to say about Santa Claus, surprisingly, and uh, quite frankly, I'm kind of terrified to be in the room with him for the rest of this recording. Oh man, is there somewhere else you can take him? <laughs> He's just silently sneering at me now. <laughs> oh man, do you, are you excited to do that kind of thing when you're a grandpa? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just just to mess with people. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was the most relatable, relatable part of this movie. <laughs> Just trust that it won't have any negative impact on their life down the road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong from that. <laughs> okay, so this movie begins in the year 1971, and our main character, Little Billy, is five years old and headed to see his grandfather in a nursing home with his mom, dad, and one-year-old brother, Ricky. Billy experiences a scary moment. He's left alone with his grandfather, who previously appeared to be catatonic. And uh, the grandfather suddenly becomes aware and goes on this disturbing rant about how the boy should fear Santa Claus and that he punishes the naughty, yada, yada, yada. And this freaks the boy out. And on the ride home from the nursing home, a man dressed as Santa Claus, who has just robbed a gas station and killed the clerk, carjacks the family. He shoots the father dead and slits the mother's throat after attempting to rape her as Billy looks on from his hiding spot as her 
bare breasts her like laying there in the concrete in the middle of the road and he just slashes her throat. Uh, meanwhile, we hear baby brother crying in the car seat in the back of the car. Um, and Ashwin, this movie appears to have like kind of a trashy, sle- sleazy, schlocky tone, but I was a bit blown away by the tragicness of these events on screen here. How are you feeling? You see, man, like you're like 13 minutes in and uh, yeah, you've kind of had like these very like scary things. I mean, I, I think an old guy like seeing this kind of stuff to a kid on its own, like conceptually is pretty disturbing and creepy. And then he's like watching his parents like murdered in cold blood. Uh, and, and like the way the mother is killed, like shirt torn open and then like uh, throat cut like that. This was like pretty tragic to see. Yeah, I was a little surprised. I just expected like some silly 80s fun. And this was pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, really intense. I also thought the music played a big role here. Like, uh, they, I, I don't know if it jumped out to you, but it was, it was kind of like there was like a lot of strings and a lot of like chaos kind of going on, which just added to kind of the, the 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 level of how hard this hit. I agree. I really enjoyed the score. That's a, a highlight of this movie. Oh, cool. All right. Um, so we move forward three years in time. Billy and his little brother Ricky are now eight and four, and they are in an orphanage celebrating Christmas. Under the thumb of the incredibly strict disciplinarian Mother Superior, a nun who chastises Billy for being naughty when he draws a violent picture of Santa Claus, and at one point she literally whips his ass. Um, Billy has a traumatic moment in the orphanage when he witnesses one of the nuns having sex through a keyhole, and her bare breasts cause him to flash back to Santa, ripping his mom's shirt open and attempting to rape her and then slitting her throat. Uh, when Santa comes to the orphanage for all the little kids to sit on his lap, Billy punches him in the face and flees to his room after he's like forced to sit on his lap by the nuns. So I can't really blame Billy here. Hey, what did you think of that punch? That was, that was like a, a pretty solid hit. It was a, a well-thrown punch, and it also looked like it legit landed. Like it yeah, did, I know. It didn't look like a, a movie punch. It was like, did he really just punch that dude in the face, <laughs> yeah. grown man in the face? I know, very realistic. It reminded me of uh, the movie we just saw, uh, Scream 3, where uh, doesn't Ghostface uh, knock out, or like, yeah, punch Dewey at one point? Yeah, he lands a solid right hook on Dewey's chin. It was a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, similar yeah. hit. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is odd, though. <laughs> Sometimes movies make me realize, especially from this time period, the strange things we do with children, or at least used to do, I don't know if they'll change, but... We, like, have them go sit on a strange man's lap. <laughs> um, Catholicism's a little bit of a theme in this movie, and if you grew up Catholic like I did, I don't know if they still do this, but I would go sit in a dark room with a priest, a man I barely knew, and confess my deepest, darkest sins to him, and it's just... Wow. It's all inherently a bit disturbing. So I don't know. Kids did that. Is there? Are you still, like, is there still, like, the divider situation? I mean, it's a weak-ass divider, at least it was in my church. Actually, I think okay. we were looking at him face-to-face. Oh, wow, and just confessing sins? Yep. Damn, that is dark, man. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah. anyway, all this to say, I think that punch was justified. Sure. Although Mother Superior probably should have been the uh, the landing point of that fist. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think one piece of dialogue uh, that we might want to come back to, um, I think with the introduction of Mother Superior and uh, there's another mother there, uh, there's like this conversation around, um, you know, yeah, Billy's like where they're recognizing that Billy's still carrying this trauma with him. But Mother Superior's approach is that we just have to like beat it out of him or something or like I wasn't sure what her approach was here. Did, did you understand that part? 
Yeah, I think she just thought he needed like strictness and discipline, and I can't yeah. remember what her specific aim and, and line were, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was a, and yeah, we had a more um, gentle nun here as well. I can't remember that character's name, but she was a oh. little bit of an emotional uh, stronghold for Billy as he struggled through this time in his life. Yeah, yeah, S- Sister Margaret. So I, I feel like her whole thing was like, uh, he's still battling with this. We need to like work with him on it. And uh, yeah, M- Mother Spirit just is kind of like shutting it down and just like holding to that school of belief that you can like beat it out of someone and teach them to be good. So I, I feel like that's like very fa- fundamental to like the uh, story, maybe. Just, yeah, I just, agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you know, Mother Superior and Sister Margaret were had quite an age difference too, so it, it could. A little bit yeah. be a commentary on the old school versus the new school and sure. stuff like that. Good point. Um, so we jump forward again in time from 1974 to 10 years later, 1984 now, the year the film was released. And Billy is now 18 and leaves the orphanage, orphanage and gets a job as a stock boy at a local toy store. And we get a montage of Billy enjoying his job, doing good work. He's kind of this muscle-bound hunk now. He even boxes onto his shoulder. But as Christmas season comes, he starts to get more depressed and moody. And when he is forced to play the role of the store Santa Claus, when the guy the store hired doesn't show, he begins to melt down. He sees one of his fellow employees attempt to rape rape another employee, who's also Billy's crush. Um, This happens in the stockroom, and this sets him off and and cues him up for his mantra the rest of the film, where he (laughs) basically for the rest of the movie, his only lines are naughty and punish. (laughs) <laughs> um, and yeah it's disturbing he, earlier we had seen him looking through the keyhole at that nun having sex he sees the bare breasts and flash flashes back to his mom and now he sees this attempted rape and nudity again and flashes back to his mom and he uh, he kills the co-worker who's attempting the rape by stringing him up with Christmas lights by his neck and then he stabs Pamela and drags the knife up her gut and uh, kills his other two co-workers as well what do you uh, hey, think of how all this went down? I mean, it's crazy that like we're 50 minutes in and like now the kills are starting. So I feel like that was like a really long and slow buildup. Um, and then, yeah, there's something a little bit underwhelming about the kills. I, I think my favorite part of like the, all this buildup was uh, the scene where the little girl is on his lap and he's dressed as a Santa. Because like I think he's just coming up on that breaking point. And uh, there's just something really creepy about like how he's like threatening the little girl. Like, uh, you got to behave if you're naughty. I'm going to punish you and all this stuff. Right. Um, but but then I feel like once he flips and just starts killing people, uh, I, I feel like it kind of lost some of its uh, scariness. I, I don't know if it was just the editing or like the way he was killing. It just uh, didn't seem that effective. What, what, what did you think? Sure. Some of the kills here are a little underwhelming in this specific scene. But I would, I would push back on your saying that the kills are happening now, like 50 minutes into the movie. I think a big complaint of ours with slashers so often is we don't really know backstory on characters. Nothing really matters. There's no story or character arcs, and there's just somebody blanket killing people, and then on to the next one. So I appreciated that we're in Billy's mind. We understand why he snapped, and there is some significance to the events of this movie. And meanwhile, while the killings are going on, we have a little bit of a sister Margaret in the investigative role i mean the cops are involved but she's kind of there as well having a parallel storyline of trying to find billy and and hopefully put a stop to this kind of like the guy from halloween right right she's a bit of a loomis 
Yeah, Loomis. Um, yeah, I, I hear you. Like the, I, I, I like that there, not like rushing into it. It's always a balance. But like, you know, you go from like minute 15, which is like if parents are dead, you set the context. Then you're almost like half hour, 40 minutes later before like it starts. And, and you know, like that stuff's like going to come back and like haunt him. Did you need like all that time at the orphanage or all those scenes of him like seeing people having sex, um, drawing the pictures of Santa Claus uh, being cut up by a reindeer, and then giving Santa Claus the right hook? Like, did we need like all three of those to know that like, you know, like, or were they like going too far and like spelling it out for us? I think that we needed the right hook. I don't know, man. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it all helped. I don't know that yeah. we needed to see um, that guy honk that nun's boob like three or four times in a <laughs> row. <laughs> uh, there was definitely a desire to get as much nudity into this movie as possible, it seemed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I I hear what you're saying. It sounds like you're having some trouble with the pacing here. Um, I, yeah, I feel like it would have been paced a little better. And then like when uh, shit starts to break loose in the store... And he starts killing, uh, you know, he kills like four people here. Um, I didn't feel like the kills were that suspenseful. Did you? I No, not in this scene. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah, did so like this next scene where he breaks into a random house where a babysitter played by Linnea Quigley is hooking up with her boyfriend and, and kills them. <laughs> yeah, I like this part too. And she's, she's topless the whole time, right? Yeah, for a very long time. Uh, yeah. And there is a bit of suspense, like Billy, she hears something, she doesn't know where he is, and he ultimately impales her on a mounted deer head. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was actually a pretty good kill. I think that was my favorite kill of this whole film. Like, that that looks really cool, and uh, yeah, just a, a great use of that prop. Agreed. Which is, is a strange house, right? It was like a lot of like artwork around like animals and stuff, and then like this deer head. Yeah, it was like the house of a big game hunter for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty random. Um, and then he throws the boyfriend out the window, and the little girl, their babysitting, wakes up, and he asks her if she's been naughty or nice, and she says nice, and then he gifts her his bloody utility knife that he just used to <laughs> kill these people. Yeah. Um, I, li- I, I like this house sequence. Did you like it? I did, too. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of suspenseful and cool kills in a weird moment here where he is talking to the little girl and gifts her the knife. Right. Yeah, I like that. But I think my favorite kill of the movie is when he confronts two bullies who have stolen a couple of sleds from some younger teens. <laughs> and as one of them sledding down the hill, Billy swings an axe and cuts his head off. And the other guy waiting at the bottom of the hill sees the headless body on the sled come down <laughs> and the head rolling after it. <laughs> Did you find the pacing of that scene really interesting? Because it starts off with two like completely separate characters, and then these two dudes come and like steal their sled. So there's like a good like five ten minute conversation uh, or just like dialogue going on between these uh, group of like four kids, and then all that building up to like one guy losing his head, <laughs> and then the other guy at the bottom getting killed too. I think it was meant to show that these guys were jerks and they were naughty and they were being punished. Does the guy the guy at the bottom gets killed too? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember how, but I'm pretty sure he gets killed. Oh, okay. I thought he like saw the body, the Santa Claus guy. Get, or like, yeah, but Billy shows up and this guy just runs away. But yeah, yeah. I must be forgetting. Maybe you're right. Maybe he runs away. I can't. I can't remember that part. All I really remember is the rolling head. Sure, sure. That was a good one. Um, so the cops by now are onto this. They're searching the town for a killer in a Santa suit. They know it's Billy, and the orphanage is on high alert. 
The cops approach the orphanage, and when they see someone dressed as Santa approaching the children in the front yard, they shoot him dead, only to find out that this was Father O'Brien dressed as Santa for the children. And, of course, Billy's little brother, Ricky, was right there front and center to witness it. Um, at least retroactively, they, that's what they claim happened in the second movie. I can't remember if that was really him, yeah, Ricky, who, who saw Santa in that in this first movie or not. I, they... I think they changed certain elements of the movie in the sequel, but um, they did, especially for, uh, for this scene, because like I think here it's like a priest, like a deaf priest, right? Yeah, yeah. And, then, and in, in the, the sequel, sequel they, they say it's a janitor. Right, right. Um. Anyway, Billy does eventually make his way to the orphanage, where he tries to kill Mother Superior, but before he can bring his axe blade down upon her, he is shot dead by the police. And in Billy's last words, he looks at the children in the orphanage and says. You're safe now. Santa Claus is gone. <laughs> and the film ends with his little brother, Ricky, who is now 14, presumably, looking up at Mother Superior and saying, Naughty. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Opening right up for a sequel. Uh, what were your thoughts on this film? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, it was it was interesting, man. And uh, you know what? What I like about it and which I don't feel like other slashes do is I think it really took that theme of like childhood trauma uh, into like this killer and, and making and like kind of making the visible connection between like why he was going around killing people and tying it to like a specific event in his life and how we like embodied this like villain and then at the end when he's dead he's like saying yeah everyone's safe now so I really like that they took it that far I, I can't think of too many other uh, slashers where like you understand the trauma of the villain uh, the whole time and Maybe you're sympathizing with him a bit. Do, is, have you seen that in any other film? I feel we probably have, but I can't think of any examples offhand. And even if I could, you're right. It is unique in that we really do get into his head. Like, he's the main character for the first, I guess, for the entirety of the movie. So yeah. you intimately know exactly what's wrong and why he broke. Um, right. So it's interesting because he's your hero the whole movie, and then you have to watch him going around killing people. So, right, it's a bit of a, a shift in the in the viewer's standpoint, and it's kind of I don't know. I, I don't know if it makes the movie more complex and interesting, or makes it harder to care what's happening in the second half. Or sure, it, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you are you aren't like necessarily feeling the scare from like the the. Um, the victim's perspective too much. Like I, I don't know. Like if if we're supposed to like bond with Linnea Quigley's character, or, like anyone in the store, it does seem like he's going around killing people that you might not necessarily care for, like the bullies or um, the you know his, his coworker who's like you know harassing the other coworker. So uh, yeah, it's it's a weird thing where you're kind of like be behind him on some of these kills, and I, it's hard to call him the bad guy. Uh, and even at the end, he's not like trying to kill the kids, right? He's coming for Mother Superior, who I think is like a pretty solid villain in this, isn't she? I agree, yeah. And really what this movie does too, in a lot of ways, you could argue it takes the subtext that critics and film analysts have kind of put on to slasher films that, you know, anybody who has sex or does drugs is going to die. Mm -hmm. And it makes that the text of the movie. He's going around theoretically punishing people who he considers to be naughty. Yeah, like, sure, right. If you do something mean or you have sex or you're doing drugs or drinking, <laughs> Billy is going to kill you. I mean, he probably kills a person or two that you could argue was just innocent, an innocent bystander. Mm -hmm. But in his mind, they're all naughty and must be punished. Yeah, yeah, good point. 
Um, except for uh, Mother Superior, though. Like, what's her crime that he's going after her to kill her? Is it? I mean, she was oh, horrible to him as he was growing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. She's possibly the reason he is this way. So part of him like does realize that and is like going after her to like get revenge on that. If, whether or not he realizes it or not, I'm sure he just remembers her whipping him and like locking him in his room and right. punishing him presumably his entire life there in the orphanage. Sure, right. Yeah, I I also disappointed that that face off between those two ended the way it did because I, I feel like that would have been a really interesting dynamic where he comes in, sees Mother Superior who like is a lot to blame for how he is, and like I kind of expected her to have more power over him. But it didn't seem like it. It seemed, it seemed like he was like pretty ready to take take her out if it wasn't for yeah. those cops. Yeah, it's an interesting moment there. And but I kind of like the. Uh, I feel like a little bit of that interaction between the two of them goes on to Ricky when when he looks at her and says naughty. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. What 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 did you think of the film? You know, I think something's happening to me lately where I'm actually starting to like slashers. <laughs> Oh, you you didn't like slashes before? Well, I feel like historically I've bitched about him and given him low ratings, right? I mean, both yeah. of us pretty much have. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I've watched my last few as watch parties with people on our Discord server, and I think that helps. But also, I don't know, I think I've just seen good ones. Like the last five or so I can think of that I saw were the Mutilator and Pieces with folks from the Discord. I liked both of those. I liked The Burning and the last Friday the 13th movie, both of mm-hmm. which we covered on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think the repetitiveness of the slasher formula has finally broken something in me. <laughs> but oh, <no. laughs> I do think this one is unique because it has a story. Like, it's a fairly simple story, but a boy has a traumatic event in his past. We get to watch him struggle with it at multiple phases of his life, and then we see him ultimately broken by an event that triggers him. Like... It, it's a thorough, well-thought-out story that makes sense and has a through line. Um, and we can see how A gets us to B gets us to C. It's not just, like, mindless, here's some people in different settings and they're all getting killed. Like, yes, that does happen. It falls into slasher tropes, but it has reasoning behind it. Um, and I thought there were some interesting stuff, too, that struck a chord with me, like... And this is just my personal experience with the Catholic Church, but like shame and bottling up things and uh, things being so demonized that you can't separate that there's good things associated with it as well. Like this is an extreme example. He had a traumatic event uh, happen to him, but I, my experience in the Catholic Church is sex is demonized, period. Um and Billy's kind of triggered any time he sees nudity. And that, you can argue that really would have happened regardless of his time in the orphanage because, you know, presumably the first time he saw a naked woman was when this horrible thing was happening to his mom. So that that's really probably what poisoned his relationship with nudity or sexuality or anything like that. But uh, I don't know, the, the subtext and undertones that one could read into from the Catholic orphanage uh, they struck a chord with me, and it kind of made it a movie you could read more into than your average slasher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It did feel like it had a little bit more depth. Uh, yeah, and it, that's a good call around the the Catholic Church or religion in general, and, and like the the good versus bad, and how that might affect kids. Also, uh, I think yeah, just the idea of like mental health and like kind of you know the things you're exposed to at a young age. If you don't like address them or like push them down or suppress them or ignore them, how they might play out later 
in in like a pretty extreme way. I thought that also felt pretty realistic. Yeah. Um, and the conclusion I thought with him like telling the kids they're safe now, it, it's kind of tragic in its own way, and it's a fitting end to Billy's story to me. Yeah, that was a great line. I mean, I, I know you kind of called out like he only is saying like naughty or uh, punish, which which is kind of uh, repetitive. But yeah, that that like last closing line that's pretty haunting. Yeah, and then you know not only was he just broken by all this Santa and Christmas type stuff, but he is also. Santa Claus now. He's in the getup. He's playing the character which he's always viewed as a murderous killer who punishes people by killing them because that's the Santa he knew. He saw, he didn't just see a guy rape and kill his, try to rape and and ultimately succeed in killing his mom and his father. He saw Santa doing it because he was five and thought that that was actually Santa. Um, So I don't know. There was some, some complication here, some depth that I, uh, was surprised to find <laughs> the acting isn't great but it's not terrible uh for a low budget slasher it could be a lot worse the score like i said was good i thought it kind of elevated the movie a bit um but also kind of fit right into the aesthetic and there were enough intriguing ideas and exciting moments throughout that it, it held my attention throughout even though I, I get your pacing gripes but i don't know if i felt that so much yeah uh, I agree. Uh, score obviously really good. Um, when you call the slow budget, though, I mean it was it was seven hundred fifty thousand in like eighty four. So I I don't know. Like, is that like a low budget film? Hmm. Good question. Um. Let's see. That probably would have been like one point five. No. A little over two million today in today's dollars. Mm. Um, yeah. Or maybe yeah. more like. 1.5 somewhere around there 1.5 to 2 so yeah I mean it's still low budget but it's not bottom of the barrel it's it's sure. not shoestring yeah I mean uh, I thought for the budget uh, I thought the acting could have been a little bit better um, and I also thought actually yeah you're right if, if Nightmare on Elm Street came out the same weekend and that had a budget of 1.1 million then yeah you're probably right this this probably does qualify as a low budget film for the time um, sure. but uh, yeah I, I thought the acting was kind of shoddy uh, especially like the people in the store, and I thought the dialogue throughout could have been uh, way better. Did you didn't find the dialogue to be kind of weak? The dialogue was weak. Yeah, yeah. I agree. The dialogue was weak. Uh, did you find the kills uh, like graphic enough or like interesting enough where it was like really cool? To, like I, I don't think a lot went into like the special effects here. I think aside from Linnea Quigley's kill and the sled riding kill, they are pretty underwhelming. I'll agree with that as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I feel like they took a shortcut there, and um, and then pacing wise, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. Like, uh, I, I mean, I, I can kind of see it both ways. What about like when uh, there's like that random cop like walking around the orphanage premises, and then like he f- stumbles upon Billy and gets killed? I, I felt like there were like a few distractions to like the main storyline around Billy that uh, I couldn't tell if like they added to the film because it built tried to like build up suspense on new scenes with new characters. Or if they fell flat because these weren't characters that we knew or like it felt kind of, you know, untied together or something. I think that's a fair criticism as well. I didn't mind that scene with the cop, the cat and mouse game on the grounds of the orphanage, but it didn't add to the movie. And to go back on an earlier criticism of yours, that time should have been put into a final confrontation between him and Mother Superior. Oh, yeah. Because effectively you have the showdown of the movie being Billy versus a cop we really don't know much about. Like, <laughs> that's not the ultimate villain here. It shouldn't be who the showdown is with. 
there should have been more time. You're right. There should have been more time between him and Mother Superior. It didn't have to be even a physical encounter, but you had a good idea, maybe a bit of a mind game of her having some sort of power over Billy still because she was the authority figure to him for his entire life. Um, there could have been some really interesting dialogue there. Yeah, yeah, that was a real missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Good criticism. Um, and again, I, I'm trying to speak positive of this movie just because it feels like I'm the one who's going to come in a little bit higher on it, but I don't think it's perfect. I, I think... I didn't have as many negative criticisms written down, but you laid out a few good ones that are very valid. <laughs> yeah, but but I agree with you. I mean, I, I feel like I just thought we were watching better slashers, but maybe like we're, I think maybe when you start to watch a few, you understand like what the formula is and then you can kind of like start to appreciate like when they go beyond that or do something different. Maybe that's what's happening to us, but it was a lot more fun to watch this with like the Discord group versus I wonder how much I would have enjoyed it just like on my own. I think that yeah, really Yeah, I can't. I can't tell what's happening. I can't tell if it's just like you said, we've been watching better ones lately or that we've, I mean, we always knew the formula, right? It's not like, (laughs) and we knew to set our expectations low from the get-go. So it's not like I've been truly beaten down. Like I never go into these expecting much, Mm -hmm. but I I think, uh, I don't know, maybe we've been lucky, but but who knows? (laughs) It's hard to, uh, it's hard to not be subjective and to realize when you're being subjective or not. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> After like 180 episodes, I, I don't even know what I think anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. Can you imagine like trying to be consistent with our scoring for like this whole time? <laughs> that just, like, I often <laughs> think of that when I score things. I'm like, th- I go with my gut number, but then I'm like, well, think of other movies that gave that gut number to Yeah. How does that check out? Right, right. And it usually does. It I, does? I okay. think I'm fairly consistent, but... I don't know. I, I think I've had some controversial takes lately, so now I doubt everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like a month later, I'm like thinking I, I gave the wrong score or something. It's, yeah, uh, in our Scream 3 episode, you thought we disliked Scream 2, but we both gave it like four. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Actually, maybe you gave it. Uh, yeah, you gave it a three and a half. I gave it a four. Oh, uh, okay, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, it's hard, hard but... Uh, uh, yeah, that's what makes us fun, I guess. Sure, right. <laughs> of all the tastes. <laughs> our, our stupidity is all part of the entertainment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, well, zero to five boob-triggered flashbacks. What do you give this movie? Uh, I think I'd go three and a half boob-triggered uh, flashbacks. Uh, it was fun watch, uh, cool concepts, and then, yeah, I would have liked to see better uh, dialogue, uh, and I, I think some great kills, some more great kills would have been uh, a lot of fun as well. But uh, good, oh. good, good time there. How about you? Well, that rating comes on the heels of an appropriate conversation because that is not what I was expecting from you. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> no, it sounded like you were coming in at like two or two and a half. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I give it lower than you. I gave it three boob-triggered flashbacks. Ah, okay. Nice. Although nice. after watching the sequel, I was tempted to bump it up to 3.5. Something about the sequel made me appreciate this one more. <laughs> no kidding, really? Well, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we'll talk more about that. I could see my enjoyment of this increasing too upon additional Christmas season rewatches. Yeah, yeah. I it's interesting. I, I mean, I feel like when we started this conversation, I, I think I was feeling a lot lower, but I think uh, like talking it through with you and kind of like appreciating more of like what it did differently and some of the things it highlights. Uh, I think it does put it like a notch above your typical slasher. So uh, yeah, I feel is is three like pretty good for you when it comes to slashers. 
Yes. Yeah. To me, three is a good slasher. Okay. Cool. Cool. I mean, three in general is a good movie. That's my standard. I liked it. Yeah. Yep. But uh, for I guess the tone of my conversation, it's interesting too because we can give two movies threes or three and a halves. And it can be a conversation that's centered around disappointment, like a Candyman episode. <laughs> yeah. Where we like gave that a positive score, but we were both just kind of disappointed and expecting mm-hmm. more. Or we can watch a slasher that we expect to hate and be saying nothing but positive things about <laughs> right. it and give it the same score. It's so unpredictable. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. But I mean, it's so much centered around expectations. It just it's goes to show how much any critic oh, yeah. is really just super subjective and and i think the goal is to give your subjective rating and then give objective or as close to objective as you can get reasons behind the rating sure yeah that makes a lot of sense damn dude that's a really good point because i i think i came into this one uh ready to like not like it just because knowing it's like an old movie uh it's going to be kind of campy and in slasher so i'm not like huge on those so i i think that's probably part of my higher score than probably what i should be giving it May I ask what number you had written down heading into this conversation, or did you not have a number written down? Uh, I did not have a number written down. Do you never have a number written down? <laughs> no, I sometimes I do. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I, I feel like for this one I was oscillating between like somewhere between a two and a half and a three and a half, and uh, I thought like yeah, because I, I don't know, yeah, for for some reason. I, I I don't know if this is a uh, this like kind of breaks the idea of like how to be a critic, but like you watch a movie, you think about like what you thought of it, but then you talk to someone about it, and then it kind of like evolves your thinking on it. So what do you go with like your original preview like a uh, perception of it, or do you kind of like keep it open and nimble so that you can go with the score that's like more most reflective based on the discussion you've had with people about it? Right. I think uh, it's tough. It's up to you. I think some people think that you bow to what I say too much. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and yeah. I also think some listeners want to hear controversy, but I mm-hmm. don't think that should indicate where, where we rank things. And should we like watch Tuscan or something? <laughs> yeah, I think we should just dislike <laughs> each other more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we can work on that. Uh, no, but I, I think for me, what it really was, I, I just expected to, to hate this one so much that I ended up being really surprised by how much I liked it. Yeah, I think I was right there with you. Yeah, um, but uh, I and I don't know, like I, I do think I, I'm starting to like, like I, I'd push slashes up as as a genre for me, which uh, I it is coming like a long way, but some of these are, are pretty decent, I guess. All right. Well, that opens us up to uh, maybe covering more slashers than we typically do going down the road. Yeah, I'm for it. Let's do it. All right. All right. I think it's holes for both, especially this time period. This like gritty, low budget '80s slashers. We uh, we've got plenty more to see. Yeah. You. One of the things that jumped out to me in this film is like with uh, that genre. Like you, there are all these tropes that people associate with it. Like, uh, uh, like the topless women, or like the the black actor who like dies first, right? Uh, right. And I, I feel like uh, we haven't seen too many that fall into those, have we? Not lately, but I mean, almost all the Friday the Thirteenth movies do. Sorry, we keep bragging on those, everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. For but I mean, and that's not necessarily an insult, but they kind of do. They do kind of play but, that up, yeah. Yeah, but also I do think film analysts and critics have retroactively put a lot of things on 80 slashers that aren't necessarily there. Mm, yeah. it, I can't remember what issue of Fangoria it was. Maybe it was like a year ago, but a, a guy 
can't remember if it was a guy or a woman, wrote an article who was like, hey, this whole, like, virgin survives the horror movie thing oh, is yeah. wrong. Like, it never... It's not like that. And, like, Laurie right. Strode does drugs in Halloween. Uh, right. We don't know that she's a virgin. What makes you think that? And right. just countless <laughs> examples he gave of villains, or, I mean, heroines who weren't this, like, squeaky clean virgin and other examples of people who were like that dying. It's just, it's right. not a uh, a claim that can easily be supported. Right, like yeah, yeah. You can yeah. cherry pick your data, but it, it doesn't really, it's not a foolproof theory. Yeah, it really isn't. Yeah, I, mean, I kind of expected all these movies to be kind of typecasted in, like, kind of one formula, but we were, I think we're seeing a good variety uh, across these. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, man. Anything else on this movie? Uh, no, that's all I got. Okay. Well, that has been our discussion on Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984, everybody. If you enjoyed it, feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show, and we appreciate it. Um, if you want to connect with us, go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the social links drop-down, and you'll find links to Facebook and Twitter. That is where we announce what movie we are covering next week. You can also click on the link for our Discord server and come join us and a bunch of friends talking about movies, horror movie fans that just want to talk about horror movies. We have watch parties going on there pretty regularly lately too, so hop on and hang out with some cool people. If you want more of us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the Patreon button and become a subscriber for $1 a month and gain access to bonus content. Uh, let's see. Go to Etsy.com and look up Horror Movie Club Coasters, and you'll find a coaster set with our logo on it, done by our friend Amy from Amy May Pop Art, and then you'll end up at her shop. And if you don't like our coaster set, buy anything else from her. It's all awesome. Great horror art. And I think that's about it. If you want to get in touch with us via another method, podcast at horrormovieclub.com is an email address you can use to get in touch with us. And until next time, if Santa Claus ever tries to flag you down on the side of the road, I'd just err on the side of caution and run him over and keep driving. Run him over. <laughs> yeah. Cancel Christmas. It's the prudent approach to the situation. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. I mean, you if the guy's been around that long, I'm sure he can handle a car. Yeah, yeah, you'd think so. <laughs> He'll just lift it up and throw it. <laughs>